Ben, Ben Avery here from the Comic Book Time Machine. Just to uh, quickly remind you that these following episodes were actually taken from a larger episode and cut up into more easily indexed, smaller portions. So there are going to be times when I talk about, you know, next in this episode or previously in this episode, because originally these were released as long episodes that covered a single month of the comics. A long time ago, on a spinner rack far, far away. The Comic Book Time Machine presents Marvel's Cosmic Comics, exploring Marvel's licensed sci-fi and fantasy during the Star Wars period. Episode 43, Marvel Classics Comics, issue number 31, H.G. Wells's The First Men in the Moon. Okay, so it's First Men in the Moon, not on the moon. I beg forgiveness from those of you who are in the know. Um, it is a classic of sci-fi, and it's th- the writer is H.G. Wells, who is a master and a father, honestly, of modern modern science fiction. Um, so that said, uh, as I'm reading this Marvel Classics Comics uh, issue number 31, it's time for some confessions. First confession, I cheated. This book is Marvel. It is sci-fi, but it was not licensed. Uh, not from what I can tell. H.G. Uh, Wells' name is all over the place, but there's no copyright indication uh, that it belongs to the estate of H.G. Wells or anything like that. In fact, it published in 1901. I believe this would have been in the public domain as of 1977. Late 70s is when there was a major shift in copyright law that did put some a uh, number of things in the public domain. And 1901... Uh, maybe even before that law might have been uh, early enough to put this story in public domain uh, even before the, the late 70s. So anyway, um, didn't need to be licensed. That, that's all that to say. It didn't need to be licensed. Anyone could do with that story as they wanted. Um, but I came across this comic and I realized that it fell into the dates of the experiment, although there are other Marvel Classics comics um, like uh, Jules Verne's um, Master of the World and um, She and H.G. Wells' Food of the Gods, actually another H.G. Wells thing um, that also fell in the dates of the experiment. But this is the one I chose. I, I wanted to go with this one. And so I just tucked it into the bag for this month because it was it was sci-fi. It was an adaptation of a novel and it was a classic sci-fi novel that honestly um, feeds into John Carter. And, you know, there's there's a a direct line connecting the dots between John Carter and First Men on the Moon. First Men on the Moon definitely inspired things in John Carter. And John Carter then, like, you know, we've talked about, uh, definitely inspired Star Wars. I mean, there's there's, there's a direct line connecting the dots from H.G. Wells' First Men on the Moon to Star Wars. So there's that as well. And besides that, I had seen the movie a few years back. 
um, which, by the way, the movie featured great creature effects by the great Ray Harryhausen. Um, I haven't seen any of the newer adaptations, just that one. But I had seen the movie. Um, I had I, I've studied War of the Worlds as uh, the novel itself, but also as the radio drama and even the, the the classic movie, not the Steven Spielberg one, but the the classic one. Um, I think it's George Powell who, who was doing that one. But um, the, but the thing with War of the Worlds, there, there is a Marvel Classics Comics adaptation of War of the Worlds that um, they did. But that I and I had that one in my collection. That's something I could have just reached in and not had to seek out like um, some of those other titles I was talking about earlier. Um, so anyway, that came before Star Wars. It came in that pocket of time. That, that had uh, w- with 2001 and, and Logan's run. But, uh, you know, back then I wasn't ready to cheat yet when I was, you know, doing the early episodes and trying to figure out what I was going to put in the bags and stuff like that. I wasn't wasn't ready to cheat yet there. Um, the other thing is I, I had heard about this book. Uh, it inspired C.S. Lewis to write Out of the Silent Planet, which was the first book in his sci-fi series or a space trilogy, as they call it. And the second book in that series is one of my favorite novels of all time, of all time paralandra seriously it's a beautiful book about alien worlds and innocence and evil and out of the silent planet is a short read and so usually if i'm in the mood to read paralandra i go ahead and read out of the silent planet with it i've read out of the silent planet six seven eight times maybe i'm not i'm not sure it's one of those that i discovered in junior high uh and and just never let go of it uh, between that and, and paralandra uh, and so anyway, I, I also really just wanted to read this. I mean, I, I found it at a convention when I first purchased it and I just hadn't gotten around to reading it and it was just there, you know? So I cheated, uh, and I stuck it in. I, I could have cheated with other things, like I said, and, and there are more cheats coming. There are more cheats coming. I don't remember what all of them are, but they're coming. Um, it's just, this is, um, this is my first big cheat, I think. Second confession, I started reading this comic three, no, four times before I finally tonight got past the third page and kept on reading. And I only continued reading tonight because I had to read it if I wanted to finish this episode. I teased this issue, this comic, too many times. Not not that you guys are like hanging on every word, um, you know. Oh, Ben teased this. I can't. I'm so excited that he's going to do first man on the moon. First man on the moon. First. No, I know that's not happening, but um, I tease it too many times to go and edit those references out. It would take more we more work to find those places where I teased it uh, than it would take to just read the book. Just read it, you know, um, And it, but it's a long book. It's, it's another one of those like uh, Man from Atlantis where it has that. Not the saddle stitched um, spine, but it actually has a, a spine with words that can be printed along the, the edge there. It's, it says 52 full pages, no ads. And, and that's true from a certain point of view, as long as you count the front cover as one of those 52 pages. Uh, the inside front cover easily gets counted into that 52 count too, uh, because it actually has information about HG Wells and the inside back cover has a pinup actually of HG Wells that, um, unlike the pinup of Patrick Duffy, I can't imagine that this HG Wells pinup was ever pinned up on any, you know, school girls, you know, cork board or 
vanity mirror or whatever back in 1977. Maybe, maybe someone did, but, but doubtful. Anyway, 52 pages, no ads. It only works if you count the cover as a page and you don't count the back cover as an ad because the back cover shows what two comics are coming this month in Marvel Classics Comics. Uh, First Men on the Moon. Uh, so there's an ad for this book on the back of this book. Um, it was joined by White Fang that month, and then it said coming soon for the next round, uh, Robin Hood and the, the Prince and the Pauper. And yes, I did consider cheating on Robin Hood and including that, but like I said, I have more cheats coming, and that's one I would have had to track down and, and purchase, and I didn't feel like doing that. Anyway, not for a cheat, you know. Uh, but all that to say... Uh, there's really 48 pages of story and <laughs> I had a hard time getting into it. I'd start reading the first page, the second page, and I just think, ah, uh, 46 more pages like this. Um, you know, and one of the things about this though, I consider this kind of reading. Sometimes I consider it sci-fi homework. Uh, it's one of those things where I feel like you have to at least experience it once if you're interested in science fiction or if you're interested in the roots of stuff. And so this was a nice, you know, I can use the comic book, you know, I, I don't want to read the actual book. I'll read the comic book. Um, it still is difficult to, to get into it. So uh, the other thing, though, uh, you know, I, I say it's three pages, but I look at this cover and I love the cover. And that's another one of those reasons why I was like, I want to do this. I want to do this because the cover, you know, they're on the moon. There's a landscape of the moon. There's the earth in the background, you know. And it's 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 a blood pumping sci fi pulp cover with two English gentlemen punching spear wielding aliens. And I should get into this. Right. I mean, that's that's what you would think. Um, and, and almost right. Uh, this adaptation of the story, it, it's similar to some of the movie adaptations that I did earlier in this experiment uh dense pages full of many panels and many 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 words uh, but when i finally forced myself tonight to really finish it i was finally able to get into the rhythm of the storytelling and i'm actually happy to say i'm glad i did it, it carried me along and I, I enjoyed the story. I really did. It ended up being a fun read. Um, it adapts each chapter of the book fairly quickly. Uh, there's 25 chapters in these 48 pages. So some pages or some chapters rather have three pages. Some pages or some chapters, I mean, uh, have uh, just as few as one page. But the the artwork, it just it complements the source material. It, it it has the right tone, the right mood, and the right pacing. Um, now, I never heard of Rudy Messina, although uh, apparently Rudy did ink some John Carter with John Carter number six. But uh, the credit list on Mike's uh, Amazing World of Comics is is pretty short. There's like 13 things on there. Um, the writer, though, Don McGregor, who is credited not just as writer, but as script and design. It's... Archie Goodwin, editor-in-chief, David Kraft, editor, Don McGregor, script slash design, and then Rudy Messina, art, and Petra Goldberg, colorist. So Rudy, it looks like, did the penciling and the inking, but I almost wondered, did Don McGregor do, like, page layouts or something to get that design credit? 
That was interesting. Don McGregor is a name I had heard of. I don't know if I've ever read anything that he's written uh, looking through his credits. I didn't really see anything uh, that rang any bells of, of series or books that I had read, but he did do a lot of Marvel Classics comics as well. And he does well with the task here. I can appreciate what it takes to turn a, a novel into a comic script. That can be daunting. And, you know, trying to take all these words and turn them into pages of pictures. Um, and I can, uh, again, uh, here's confession number three. Uh, I wasn't planning on saying it, but I, I do remember reading at least one review of my work uh, from the script of George R. R. Martin's The Hedge Knight that I wrote. Uh, saying that there was just too much text on the page. And so I, I can understand the problem. And not only can I understand the problem, even as I'm saying it is a problem here, I'm recognizing um, maybe not so much. Well, no, there's a couple pages in the hedge night that I could definitely point to and say, yeah, there's too many words there. But um, uh, it's it's something that I recognize in my own writing that I know I have to work at. And so anyway, beyond the script, the story, it's a simple story. Um, an independent English scientist creates a material called Caverite. His name is Caver, and he creates this material called Caverite, which has been used many, many, many times in different places as, uh, you know, some sort of steampunky type of material that allows for, you know, space travel or flying ships or that kind of thing, or even like flying boat ships, not just spaceships, but, um, he creates that. And it's a material that allows things to counter the effects of gravity and push away from gravitational pull. And he uses it then to go to the moon with his neighbor, who is a playwright, who is he's narrating as if it is um, H.G. Wells. Um, I'm sorry, I just noticed on the cover of the magazine, um, you know, everywhere else it talks about H.G. Wells, but on the cover it says the first man in the moon adapted from the classic novel by Jules Verne. Um, whoops. Apparently, uh, Archie or David uh, weren't doing their job when they were editing the, the cover of this book. Interesting. Now, Jules Verne, uh, that's understandable. He, he wrote you know a book about going to the moon. Um, H.G. Wells and Jules Verne actually both wrote similar books about launching and going to the moon. But, um, hmm. That's funny. Anyway, okay, I guess it's maybe it's more funny to me than it is to you, listener. But uh, anyway, uh, they, where was I now? Totally threw my, my train of thought. Oh, oh, yeah, he's calling himself H.G. Wells. That's why I, I caught myself there. Um, he's he's the acting as the narrator. As H.G. Wells, he went along with uh, Caver to the moon. And they they get there. They discover a race of ant-like alien creatures kind of have a hive mind and a caste system. And it's, it's an alien thing where it's not, uh, it's not people who look like people and act like people only a little bit different. And it's not aliens that look completely alien, but still act like people. It is aliens who act in an alien manner and have their own alien society and culture and communication. And anyway, um, they fight the creatures. They're captured by the creatures. Uh, it's kind of that's getting into some pulpy kind of things here with the way that they fight the creatures. And one, they, they both escape, but they they have to try and find their ship. And um, the, the character, uh, the the playwright, 
actually finds the ship and accidentally launches it to go back. And he's going to gather some weapons. He's going to go back and rescue his friend, Caver. Unfortunately, uh, the ship gets launched by a... <laughs> I don't know whatever happens to this kid. I don't know if they address it in the novel. But there's this kid who, as they're walking away from the beach where he's left the ship behind, thinking no one will mess with it, um, this kid rides by. He's, like, doing deliveries or something like that. And, they, and he actually has a thought a thought cloud saying, ah, oh, he'll leave it alone. He won't touch it. He won't do anything. And then as he's telling people his story, the spaceship lifts off. The kid's just gone. I don't know what happened to the kid. But anyway, uh, afterward, they start receiving messages from the scientist who, uh, from Caver, who has learned to communicate with the aliens, the uh, selenites. I, I don't know how you're supposed to say it, but I think selenites is how you're supposed to say it. And he's learned about how their culture and learned about their caste system and, and learned about their society and, and learned how to communicate and everything like that. Um, and, and, you know, honestly, the story is one that just reeks of the time period. And that's in a, in a good way. It reeks of the time period with the, um, the technology, um, the delight of scientific discovery, but then the questions of what to do with that scientific discovery, especially in light of the imperialist mindset of England at the time. And it gets into ideas of uh, the alien culture and mores and how alien intelligences might react to human culture and how uh, humans might react or recoil from things that are so alien that the aliens just take you know, for granted as just a part of society and a part of life. Um, but then that's kind of a counterpoint to how the aliens might react to human culture and, and human uh, habits and, and human ideas and human, uh, well, foibles, you know, <laughs> problems with, with humans. Um. It, again, going back to the time period, uh, as they discover gold, the idea of British imperialism goes from subtext to text as they they drunkenly discuss taking over the moon and stripping it of the valuable natural resources. Uh, and it's an interesting concept. It's portrayed well in the comic. I assume it's portrayed well in the source material. Like I said, I haven't read this novel, but I've seen the you know that movie from the the '60s. Uh, but reading this it's done well. The, the alien culture is shown to have kind of uh, an immoral lifestyle of, of uh, or culture even where they simply discard life when a life form is no longer of service to the community, to the hive. I, I get some, you know, if, if this wasn't 1901 um, and if I was, you know, more of a historian, because maybe 1901 was something where uh, communism was, I, I don't know the history of communism when it when it started, and and so I don't know if this is meant to be a uh, a dig at communism or to if it's meant to be you know kind of a metaphorical thing there. But I'm reminded of you know how communism is portrayed in in other literature that I've read, um, and so then when uh, that human then recoils in horror at that seeing the way that they treat life. The aliens are then horrified uh, by the human as he explains war and explains this is something that we do and why do we do it? And they, they can't understand why they do it. And they actually ask him for what is a positive that comes out of war. He says that it prunes population, you know, and they're, they're, they're mortified by this idea. And I like that. Uh, this is that's science fiction that it makes you think it makes you ask questions. Um, 
and it makes you say, oh, maybe some of the stuff that I am taking as, you know, for granted as normal, should I? You know, and, and so it's, it does its job there. H.G. Wells, he, he's a master uh, for a reason. People still read him for a reason because there's still some valuable ideas in his writing. I don't agree with everything, you know, within uh, his his writing and within his, his worldview, but um, I, I I enjoyed reading this and enjoyed the, the questions that it posed. And I even enjoyed some of the answers. The fights, on the other hand, they they reminded me of John Carter. Um, they kill the Selenites easily and they kill them out of practical necessity too. Um, but then also I'm reminded of John Carter as they're jumping in the moon's lower, lower gravity. And of course this reminds me of John Carter. I've been reading John Carter for months now. Um, and I'm reading it next after this. Uh, but like I said, there's definitely, you can connect dots directly from first men in the moon to John Carter warlord of mars i don't know if there was another step in between there for um edgar rice burrows but uh there's definitely there's a line direct line from here to there the creature design by the way in this book uh is also really really neat it's suitably alien kind of creepy all in all i enjoyed all 50 of the 52 full pages with no ads <laughs> so i may have started out feeling like homework but in the end, it was a fun and it was a, a pulpy and also a little bit thoughtful sci-fi story that uh, it hung on to its early science fiction imagination. It's early uh, sci-fi imaginative roots. It held on to those, even though uh, by the time this comic came out, we'd been to the moon a few times between you know when the original book was written and this comic came out. But I'm glad that they didn't try and. Uh, modernize it or um, try and, 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 you know, synthesize what we actually knew about the moon with what was happening in the story. Instead, you know, there's, there's plant life, there's an atmosphere and there's aliens. And I, I like it when you're able to hang on to that um, imagination, even when the imagination is completely and utterly wrong. We got up there. It was a dead, gray, lifeless place. But in my imagination, because of stories like this and stories that were inspired by this, in my imagination, the moon is an exciting and dangerous place. So speaking of John Carter, though, that's where the next segment of this month's trip through time is going to take us. So we're going to head to that soon. And now I'm closing the book on the first men in the moon. Thanks for listening to the Comic Book Time Machine's Marvel's Cosmic Comics feed. You can find more discussion of many, many more comics like Superman and Spider-Man, What Ifs and Elseworlds, The Six Million Dollar Man and Batman, comics seven days old and seven decades old, on our main feed, which you can find on iTunes or at comicbooktimemachine.com. We'd also love it if you join us on Facebook at facebook.com or on Twitter, where we are at Comic Time. Next episode, our last foray into this cover date, February 1978 grouping, John Carter, Warlord of Mars, number nine, and Ben's Bullpen Bulletin. <laughs>